If you've got your Bibles with you, feel free to open with me to Micah chapter 5, verses 1 to 9. If you're looking for it, it's about two-thirds of your way through your Bible. It can be a tricky one to find, but we'll get there. Ah, phew, found it. Micah 5, verses 1 to 9. Marshal your troops now, city of troops, for a siege is laid against us. They will strike Israel's ruler on the cheek with a rod. But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. Therefore Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labour bears a son and the rest of his brothers return to join the Israelites. He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they will live securely, for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth. And he will be our peace when the Assyrians invade our land and march through our fortresses We will raise against them seven shepherds, even eight commanders, who will rule the land of Assyria with the sword, the land of Nimrod with drawn sword. He will deliver us from the Assyrians when they invade our land and march across our borders. The remnant of Jacob will be in the midst of many people like dew from the Lord, like showers on the grass, which do not wait for anyone or depend on man. The remnant of Jacob will will be among the nations in the midst of many peoples, like a lion among the beasts of the forest, like a young lion among the flocks of sheep, which mauls and mangles as it goes and no one can rescue. Your hand will be lifted up in triumph over your enemies and all your foes will be destroyed. Always something. (laughs) To the ends of the earth is Jesus' reign. Uh, That's what these guys were looking at earlier this week at the NTE conference about God's word, his gospel going out to the ends of the earth. Well, this passage that we've just read, uh, it actually serves a few purposes for us today. Uh, Firstly, it's, it's one of the core passages in the book of Micah. Uh, Micah is one of the Old Testament minor prophets and coincidentally is the one that we're up to in our kind of intermittent series going through the minor prophets sort of one book per sermon or per week as we do it. Uh, Secondly, it's a passage that foretells the coming of Jesus and uh, we're going to be doing that uh, a lot this coming month over the few weeks leading up to Christmas looking at the Old Testament passages that talk about Jesus and foretell Jesus. And thirdly, if that weren't enough, uh, it reminds us of last week's passage in 1 Peter chapter 5, where we considered the role of elders as shepherds, and as shepherds who are under the chief 
shepherd or the good shepherd, Jesus Christ, who is our ultimate model. And so we're going to just pray now and and ask that in this book of Micah, God will reveal himself to us, uh, that he'll point us to the gospel of Jesus Christ and that he'll work through the Spirit to open our eyes and transform our hearts. So shall we just pray and ask God for these things? Father God, we thank you for your word. Uh, Lord, the wonder of it, that you have uh, not only communicated to us, but you've actually revealed yourself, your character, your nature. And that, Lord, you, in your word, have, have pointed to Jesus, the greatest display of your character and nature. And so we want to pray, Lord, that you will show us through your spirit uh, yourself and Jesus in this book, that you'll open our eyes, that you'll transform our hearts, and that we might go away today with a greater knowledge and understanding, perhaps even a new knowledge and understanding of the gospel. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So in many ways, uh, Micah is a quintessential biblical prophet. Uh, He's all about the usual things that prophets are on about. That is, condemning people's sin, judging uh, or pronouncing God's judgment, and of course, predicting restoration and healing. Often that follows judgment. And if you're visiting with us this morning, uh, perhaps you're exploring Christianity or or just figuring out what church is all about, uh, I want to be honest with you. We do talk a fair bit about sin. And we do talk a fair bit about judgment. But we never do it without going on to talk about redemption and healing and the hope of salvation. We never do it without going on to talk about the goodness of God and the grace of Jesus in the gospel. And again, we can actually find all of these things in this one little book in the Old Testament, the book of Micah. So there's three sins that Micah is rebuking Israel for. And each of them point us to the solution in Jesus Christ. The first is idolatry, where people are worshipping basically anything in the place of God. The second is injustice, where people are abusing each other or, or maybe just neglecting each other. And then the third one is, is corrupt leadership. Basically, where leaders in this context are modelling that idolatry and that injustice rather than godly worship and compassion and the other things God calls us to. And so as God speaks through the book of Micah, he reveals how he's, he's moving his people from forsakenness to forgiveness, from prejudice through poverty into peace, and from dodgy shepherds to the good shepherd. That's what we're going to look at now this morning. So firstly, from forsakenness to forgiveness. What do I mean by forsakenness? Well, there's really two sides to it, and that's firstly that Israel forsook God. They abandoned God. They rejected Him. They walked away from Him. And they turned to idols instead. In Micah chapter 1, verse 5, he defines the nation of Israel using this term, high places. And he kind of says, well, what is Judah's high place? Isn't it the whole of Jerusalem? 
And what about in the north, isn't it? Samaria. And these were the two capitals of both the, the southern and the northern kingdoms. And Mike is kind of saying, well, they're both centres of idolatry. And that's what high places were. They were places of cult worship, uh, where, where people would worship false gods or foreign gods. And Mike is kind of saying, well, really the whole nation of Israel is guilty of false worship. Is guilty of trading in the worship of God for the worship of idols. Back in the book of Joshua, uh, once the people have come into the land and the covenant is being renewed, they say there, the people to Joshua, they say, far be it from us to forsake the Lord and serve other gods. Now, he's done all these things. He's brought us up out of Egypt. He's protected us on this journey through the wilderness. He's come and he's driven out all our enemies from the promised land, paved the way for us. So we will serve the Lord because he is our God. And yet centuries later, they are doing exactly what they said they would not do. They're worshipping pagan gods and forsaking the Lord. The foreign and false gods that were left in the land have traded God in for them. And effectively, this is what all human beings do, all of us. Whether it's for money, or for success, or for power, or for popularity, or for pleasure, or for comfort, we all forsake God and worship other things instead. We trade in our good creator who made us in his image for things, for stuff, for idols, for gods that are made in our own corrupted image, somehow made by human minds or human hands. And so God, in his justice, forsakes those who forsook him. In Micah, he promises to destroy Samaria and Jerusalem, both of them, turning them into rubble. And he does that, uh, he mentions, through the invading armies of Assyria and Babylon, those two mighty empires that came one after the other. He hands his people over to these other pagans, these great empires, and in so doing, he forsakes them. And Micah, for his part, as a prophet, he highlights the misery and the absolute sorrow of Israel's abandonment. He does that in the second half of chapter 1 and then also a bit in the first half of chapter 7. Because really, this is the only response to our sin and to God's judgment. It's, it's sorrow, it's to mourn and to grieve, it's to weep and to wail. Because sin is horrible. It's a despairing reality and the judgment that comes after it is just as horrible and despairing. And I wonder if we find the horror in our sin and, and we see the horror in what comes from that. Sometimes we get so used to it and so desensitized to our sin that we forget to weep and wail, to grieve and to mourn. And we kind of see this picture in Joshua's reply to the people. So if we jump back into 
Joshua chapter 24, it gives us this kind of depressing inevitability. Joshua says to the people in response, he says, you're not able to serve the Lord. How's that for uh, faith? You're not able to serve the Lord. He is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your rebellion and your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, he will turn and bring disaster on you and make an end of you after he has been good to you. It seems hopeless, doesn't it? It seems like a lost cause. Except that it's not. And I want to jump over now to the end of the book and to these words from Micah chapter 7 in verse 18 and 19. Have a listen to these words. Who is a God like you? Who pardons sin and forgives the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance. You do not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. You delight to show mercy. You will again have compassion on us. You will tread our sins underfoot and hurl all our iniquities into the depths of the sea. This is God's character. This is who he is. This is his nature. I love what it says there. He treads our sins underfoot and hurls them into the depths of the sea. It's, it's deliberately vivid imagery that we're given there. Why? Because he crushes our sins in the way that he crushed Jerusalem and crushed Samaria. So he crushes our sins and also he forsakes our sins. He hurls them into the depths of the sea. He abandons our sin, not us, but our sin. How does he do that? By sending his beloved son, Jesus Christ, as our substitute. And what does he do to Jesus? He crushes him under the weight of his wrath and he forsakes him, abandons him. That's why Jesus cries out on the cross and you can read it in the New Testament. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus, God's Son, who never once forsook Him, never once rebelled, never once rejected, He's forsaken in our place so that we can be forgiven. And I love it because Joshua was both right and wrong when he said, He will not forgive your rebellion and sin. He's wrong because actually, yes, God does forgive his people's sin all the time, consistently. But he only does it after he judges it and condemns it in and through Jesus on the cross. And so God doesn't abandon his justice. If we think of who God is, he's a just God. He does not abandon that. It's part of him. But he also reveals incredible mercy and compassion in Jesus so that we can go from being forsaken to forgiven. And just as a, a bit of a side on top of this, Jesus comes to restore our worship. All that dodgy worship and that false worship, Jesus restores that. In chapter 4, it talks about 
the mountain of the Lord and the temple of the Lord. Uh, and a, a place where we can go and learn God's ways and, and we can walk in His paths and, and we can know His word, His laws. And it's a really important passage there in Micah 4 because then in the other end of the Bible, in John chapter 4, we find Jesus speaking to this Samaritan woman at a well and He's saying to her that true worship is not about any physical mountain or any physical temple. And she's saying, you know, is it in Jerusalem or is it in Samaria? And and Jesus is saying it doesn't matter about Samaria or Jerusalem. True worship is about Him. It's about approaching God and worshipping through Jesus. And that's where we learn God's ways and walk His paths and know His Word. So forsakenness and forgiveness are kind of like these two large brackets. And everything else that Micah has falls into these brackets. It's like the opening and the closing of the book. And of course, the big picture of the gospel. But now within that comes a more specific sin and judgment and restoration. Which I've called in this point, prejudice to poverty to peace. And I'm talking about the sin of injustice the sin of corruption, the sin of exploitation. A lot of this book, uh, the book of Micah, is about the conflicts between people and especially the oppression of the weak and the poor by the rich and the powerful. And so in chapter 2, we find people coveting and stealing from each other, seizing other people's fields. In chapter 3, it says that the leaders are accused of and you've got, to, you've got to listen to this language. They're accused of like tearing the skin from others and the flesh from their bones and eating their flesh and stripping their skin and breaking their bones down and chopping it all up as if it's like meat for dinner. Just let you sit on that for a bit. But it's, it's symbolic language. They're not, they weren't actually cannibals as, as far as I know. But Mike is saying, well, their exploitation... Their oppression is no better than cannibalism. In chapter 6, it talks about dishonesty and lies and, and violence against each other. And then in chapter 7, the faithful being driven away and people just out to shed blood and do evil and accept bribes and conspire together. There's a lot of hatred. And what God does is He importantly links this back to the last stuff we were just talking about. Showing Israel that actually justice and mercy and compassion are what define true worship. What does worship of God look like? It looks like justice and mercy and compassion. So we get these really well-known verses in chapter 6 of Micah. Uh, Many of you probably had them at Sunday school. It says, will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams or with 10,000 rivers of olive oil? It's deliberately exaggerating language. He even says, shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression? You know, this child sacrifice that was forbidden in Israel. Shall I do that? Shall I go to that extent? The fruit of my body for the sin of my soul. And then Micah says, no, he's shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require? to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. 
I think it's so easy for us to claim to love justice or to desire justice. It's so easy, I think. I I think everyone in the world nearly, or, or nearly everyone, whether they're out protesting on the streets or they're just sitting quietly at home, they demand justice. They want justice. Whatever it's for and whatever it's in regards to. Let me ask you this, do you love mercy? It's easy to love justice, especially out there. But do you love mercy? Do you love compassion? Do you want to live out that stuff in your life? Do we treat each other with gentleness and forgiveness? And I think the answer so often is less and less. And the reality is that for every single conflict in the world right now, and there are millions of conflicts going on, there is guaranteed to be a neglect of mercy and of compassion and ultimately of forgiveness. Anything in the news you read, forgiveness is being neglected. So we should be asking, how do we remedy that as the church? as Christians, as those who know the forgiveness of God. Israel also neglected this kind of justice and they chose false religion instead to kind of make them feel better. And so again, God punishes them in kind. All those fields that they stole from the poor, well, they'll lose them to invaders. All those wonderful, beautiful cities that they built would be trampled, turned to dust. All the food that they eat would not satisfy them and even, even that would be taken away and all the things that they plant would not yield a harvest. Their prejudice, their exploitation would be rewarded with poverty and deprivation. But again, God would not leave it that way. He will replace injustice with justice. He will replace oppression with compassion and he will replace conflict with peace. In chapter 4 it says that he will settle the disputes between nations, that they will beat their swords into plows and their spears into pruning hooks. And we read about that in the book of Joel as well, earlier in the year. That wars will cease and that there will be peace. And then later in that same chapter, he talks about gathering the lame and the exiles and making the lame and the weak his remnant, rebuilding his people through the meek and the humble. And so this includes the poor who were oppressed by their own people. And it includes the captives of foreign empires, the victims of God's judgment, who would repent and seek to walk in God's ways once more. And of course, it all starts with the epitome of human humility and meekness, which is Jesus Christ. As we move to this last point and to that passage that we read earlier, verse 5 of that passage reminds us that Jesus is our peace. He embodies peace. And so no matter what, even if in our own lives, 
enemies invade or oppression comes or hostility or, or conflicts arise, Jesus is still our guaranteed peace. He's the peace that we hope in, even if we have to suffer. He is the peace that we seek to live out towards others, you know, whether they're enemies or friends or neutral acquaintances, it doesn't matter if they live in peace towards us, it's that we live it towards them because of Jesus. And he is the peace and the news of peace that we share with the world. Good news of great joy. He is the good shepherd who replaces the dodgy shepherds of Israel. This is the last point, and Micah has a lot of bad things to say about Israel's leaders. Whether they are civil leaders or moral leaders or spiritual leaders, whether they're prophets or priests or kings, nearly all of them were dodgy. They are the ones who are setting an example of oppression and exploitation. They are the ones who were promoting false religion while trotting all over the weak. They were the ones ripping the flesh off people in order to fill their own bellies, so to speak. So chapter 3, verse 11 says, Her leaders judge for a bribe, her priests teach for a price, and her prophets tell fortunes for money. All of them. And yet they look to the Lord's support and say, Is not the Lord among us? No disaster will come upon us. These crooked and corrupt leaders, ignoring the warnings, proclaiming this sort of false peace and security. As Micah makes it really clear in chapter 2, verse 11, I love this one. He says, if a liar and deceiver comes and says, you know, I'll prophesy prophesy for you plenty of wine and beer. It'll be flowing in the streets. That would be just the prophet for this people. Leaders who lead people astray are the worst leaders. Is that stating the obvious? I don't know. I think it's worth saying. And yet history shows us that the majority of leaders do exactly that. Whether it's the civil leaders who have stained the pages of history with blood, whether it's spiritual leaders who have hypocritically set an example of immorality, whether it's church leaders who have sold their souls for money, power and position. Leaders find it so hard not to suck. And as a leader myself, I'm often reminded that it's a bit like walking along a very high cliff edge, a precipice. Because the dangers are far, far greater when you are guiding other people. So who can possibly succeed? Who can possibly lead well? Well, the answer is only God's chosen ruler. Only God himself. Only he can shepherd his sheep in the right path. And so this ruler comes, chapter 5, verse 2, But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you, will come 
for me, one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. And this verse highlights some wonderful things. It highlights how Jesus comes both from finite obscurity, little old Bethlehem, and also from infinite eternity. I was saying to Kath just the other day how I feel like as soon as we simply portray the nativity, you know, whether we put it in a picture or put it on the mantle or it's up on a stage, I feel like as soon as we do that, we lose something. We lose the obscurity of it and the the, the sort of ultimate humility of it. And it's true, sometimes it even becomes idolised at Christmas. But I'm not saying that we shouldn't notice it and that we shouldn't celebrate it and it should sort of be put up on a pedestal. It's kind of both at the same time. And the the reason for that is because while Jesus enters through the world, uh, sorry, enters the world through obscurity, he comes from eternity. From ancient times, from days long past. And as John highlights at the start of his gospel, he was there in the beginning. He was God, he is God. And that's how this shepherd succeeds where all others have failed. He is the powerful God and our humble servant. And so he's the ultimate prophet. We looked at this a couple of years ago. He's the ultimate prophet who reveals God by humbly becoming the message itself, the word, the the gospel. He embodies the message. He's the ultimate priest who intercedes for all of us by humbly becoming the sacrifice itself, our substitute. And he is the ultimate king who leads us and guides us and protects us by humbly serving us and and submitting to death, even death on a cross. He is the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. We, like sheep, have gone astray, forsaking God, neglecting others, leading others astray. But God has laid our sin on Jesus. And so no other leader can even come close to comparing with our servant king. No other leader can ever compare with our shepherd king. No other leader can protect us and feed us like Jesus. No other leader can guide us in the right paths and stay the course like Jesus. And no other leader is worth following like Jesus. And so whether you're a leader in an official capacity or not, you still lead others. All of us lead each other. That's how it goes with sheep. If you have any idea about the behaviour of sheep, they do. They lead each other around, whether it's good or bad. They follow each other. And so to acknowledge that and recognise the only way to lead people well, to lead each other well, is to lead them in following the Good Shepherd. To lead each other in His forgiveness, displaying that forgiveness, copying that forgiveness leading each other in the gospel, to lead each other in true worship. Worship that's not about religion and rituals and temples and other things like that. 
but that's just purely about Jesus Christ. To lead each other in mercy and compassion and peace in the example of a servant and to lead each other in following Jesus. He is our forgiveness. He is our peace. He is our good shepherd. Let's pray. Father God, we just want to confess to you our sin, our rejection of you, our weakness, our selfishness. Lord, every one of us seeks idols. Every one of us neglects our fellow human beings. And every one of us leads others in the wrong paths. And we thank you, Lord, that you've given Jesus to take our punishment for us. Where we deserve to be forsaken and deprived, you've done it to Jesus instead. So that instead of crushing us, you can crush our sin. And instead of abandoning us, you can abandon our sin. You can forgive us. And you can transform us and work in us justice and compassion and mercy. Love for others. Humble, servant-hearted leadership. And everything else that we can do in the model and in the example of Jesus Christ. Thank you for Jesus, Lord. Thank you that he came to bring your forgiveness. That he is the ultimate display of your goodness and your grace among us. And thank you that he is alive and he remains to be our example. Lord, may we seek to follow him May we seek to live like him in his strength. And we pray you help us by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.